A lot of times we hear this in sports. Get your game face on. Put your game face on. And I, I know that probably bleeds over in other areas of life. But you realize that the vast majority of us have a church face that we put on when we come in here and we might have just gotten the worst news in our lives. And we're in a cloud of, of darkness, but I don't know what it is about us. When we come in here, we'll shake hands and we put that church face on. And I, I don't know if we ought to do that, actually. I, I, I don't know. You just think about that for a minute. But here's the, here's the issue this morning. When you sign on with Jesus... I know you might have some misconceptions that it's going to be a party, uh, that it's always going to be fun and games, and it don't take long to get into it to realize that's not the case. Because God does not build a bubble over you. I, I wished I could say that. You come to Jesus and you enter this protective bubble that the other things that happen to other people in life won't happen to you, but that would be a, a gross lie. So in this game of life adventure that, that we're in, you and I have to learn how to survive it. The title of this message this morning is How to Survive the Darkness, because we have it. Longfellow wrote, into each life some rain must fall, some days must be dark and dreary. I preach many sermons about rain-soaked lives and that in our lives we will have the experience of suffering and failure and disability and death. And I think we can empathize, all of us, with Longfellow into each life, some rain must fall. And, and most of us can even empathize with one of the, uh, the, the darkest men that, that ever lived his whole life, it seemed that way, it was Edgar Allan Poe. These are his words from the raven. Deep into that darkness, peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, Doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. You ever been there? Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, what is going to happen next? The rain and the darkness bring out the true people who we really are. These are the times in life that you can reflect on to know who you really are when you get in a situation like this. Then the true self, the true you, comes shining through whether you, you like it or not. It's a great illustration in Chevy Chase's remake of The Invisible Man. Chase becomes invisible after an industrial accident. Henceforth, he can only be seen when outlined by rain-powdered concrete or something that falls on him from above. And, and I think this is how our life is if we admit it. We don't know what we're made of till the rain falls, the bag of powdered concrete drops from above, or we find ourselves in darkness. And isn't it here in this dark, dreary, rain-soaked, dust-covered time that people curse God? God, this is your fault. You are the God of the rain and the sunshine. Why have you allowed me or put me in this stinking situation? And the line comes from return to me with Minnie Driver when she said, God, what were you thinking? What were you thinking when you gave me this heart? 
I really believe that we in America are, are pretty spoiled and quite impatient, almost intolerant in some cases. We've been programmed that way. We are programmed to be fed on demand. Through quick fixes, flu shots, anti-aging ointments, antidepressants, drive-through meals. I think we have so much of this, we've forgotten that it's a hard knocks in life that those character-building moments that help us make it through with inner peace and joy intact. But the question that you and I each have to answer in our own hearts, how do we retain this perspective in the midst of today's culture? Is there a guiding light? Is there a beacon? Is there a strong signal that pulses out there that we grasp? There's a lot of voices that want your attention. There are all kinds of voices, actually. You have the world that, that preaches success, that preaches money, that preaches don't give a rip about anybody else but yourself. Do what you want, when you want, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. The world kind of pushes that success. Rise to the top. Be the biggest and the brightest. You've got the world, and then you've got your own flesh, the old nature that lives within you that, that, that wants to go down the wrong path sometimes. And then you've got our enemy, Satan, the devil. He is as real as we're in this room today. Madison Avenue and Hollywood and a lot of people want to make him a piece of fiction, but I'm telling you here this morning that he's real, and he hates you more than you can grasp in your mind. And he will do anything in his power to destroy you, your family, yourself. It's his M.O. That's what he does. And I think it's good that we're aware of that. I'm not afraid of him. But the fact is I know that, that he's there and that is his path to destruction that he wants us to live on. Long ago when the world was unexplored, map makers, map, map makers had to have some way of portraying unknown areas. So they dotted these regions with dragons and monsters and large fish. And the message got through. Uncharted territories were frightening places. Sailors often feared going too far from shore lest they be gobbled up by a sea monster or fall off the edge of the earth. So terror lay buried with where the dragons appeared. But as ever explorer knows, dragons also mark the place of treasure. One day early in the first century B.C., so the story goes, a commander of a battalion of Roman soldiers was caught up in a battle that took him into territory marked by one of these dragons. Not knowing where to forge ahead into the unknown or turn back to the familiar to retreat, he dispatched a messenger to Rome with this urgent request. Please send new orders. We've marched off the map. And when we look at these words, things like rain and darkness and suffering and adversity and difficulty in life, there is no way that we put them on our map as benefits what possibly could come out of any of these that would benefit me? They're uncomfortable. We don't like it. We don't want to be there in that darkness of the unknown. Yet we understand, have to understand that there are days that we wake up in the dark. Literally, in a sense almost. And maybe you're there this morning. I don't know if I'm that unusual, but I, I have these days that I wake up and there's just, there's just something there that I can't put my finger on. 
I can't, I can't explain it, but I know that, that something's not right within me. So you, you, you put your clothes on, you go out into the day and you try to shake it and it stays with you sometimes all day long till you get back in bed that night. It's still, it's still there. But you know what? It's on those days that, that I pray the most. When everything's happy-go-lucky and I still pray, but not near as much as I do when that something is there and I call it darkness, you can call it what you will. But the question is, how do we get out of it? What do we do if we're in the darkness? What if you, just, what if you decide that you have more dark days than light days? What do you do? Sometimes we use things that alter ourselves and we have to stay on them and evidently they work. But from the spiritual perspective, what, what are you and I to do? To answer that question, we must struggle with the paradox of Scripture that says both. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. And darkness is God's covering, Psalm 18, 11, God's dwelling, 1 Kings 8, 12. And darkness is canopy in 2 Samuel twenty two twelve. In Exodus, Moses went into the thick darkness on Sinai to meet God. And in Deuteronomy, God's voice was heard out of the midst of darkness. Is it possible that God is the God of night as well as the God of light? And isn't it true that many of us seek God more in the darkness than we do in the light? Madeline LaEngel says this, made this statement. It is when things go wrong, when the good things do not happen, when our prayers seem to have been lost, that God is most present. We do not need the sheltering winds that when things go smoothly. We are closest to God in the darkness, stumbling along blindly. Thomas Stearns Elliott wrote this. I said to my soul, be still and let the dark come upon us, on you, which shall be the darkness of God. So we have all these questions, and we go to the Scripture, and I believe that in Mark 8, 31 through 38, Jesus gives us the answer to pretty much all of life. Then Jesus began to tell them that he, the Son of Man, would suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the leaders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, and three days later he would rise again. And as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and told him he shouldn't say things like that. Picture that in your mind. Brash Peter speaking to God with skin on. Man, you shouldn't say these things. <laughs> Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and then said to Peter very sternly, Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. My friends, how many of us do this? When these things come upon us that we're not real fond of, do we, do we ever try to see it through God's perspective or our own you are seeing merely things from a human point of view, not from God. We can't see the big picture. It was an enlightening day for me when I finally grasped that, that God is a mystery. We're never going to figure him out. Some people don't even believe he exists. I do. I believe, I believe what this says. I believe it's real. 
but we can't see that big picture. You don't know what God's got for your life. He gets you on this path, and he wants you to have the faith enough to follow him, but he didn't give us the end result. Does any, can anybody stand this morning and say that you know exactly the day that you'll die, that the day God, time, day, minute, hour of that time in your future, when God stops your heart and it's over for you. Now, he don't tell us that. Sometimes we take that in our own hands and kill ourselves, but that's not the plan. What a verse. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. In verse 34, he said, Then he called his disciples and the crowds to come over and listen. If any of you want to be my follower, he doesn't demand it. He doesn't send an angel with a flaming sword that's going to cut you in half or lop your head off you if you don't listen. Did you catch that? If any of you want to be my follower, I'm not demanding. I'm not commanding. I am not making you. I am giving you a free choice. This is it. Do you want to do it? And he told them, you must put, here's the conditions. You must put aside your selfish ambition, shoulder your cross, and follow me. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will find true life. And how do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? Is anything worth more than your soul in your life right now? Of all that God has blessed you with, is there anything worth more than your soul? Because your soul is that part of you that will live forever, one place or the other. If a person is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, I, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of that person when I return in the glory of my Father with holy angels. Jesus gives us our big idea. We need to pick up our cross. It's our torch in this dark world. Why? Because it lights up the darkness it guides us and it gives us purpose. And regardless of what comes my way, I know the cross that he's given me to carry. And instead of trying to eject it, I want to hug it because it, 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 it means everything to me. It, it keeps me focused. It, it keeps me on the path where I need to be. The world invites us to what? To climb ladders, to get to the top, to be whatever. The gospel invites us to to lift crosses. What will you choose? The ladder or the cross? This is an interesting kind of a cartoon that kind of gives you a little insight on how some folks see that. Let's watch. Jesus' blood never fails me. Jesus' blood
in October, I've been here 20 years, of all the things that I've said from this front, the most important thing to me is that you go to heaven with me. No, nothing else really matters. I, I care about your lives and some of the agonizing things that you deal with and sickness and death and just this darkness I'm talking about. But the most important thing, will you, will you be in heaven? I think a lot of people think they're going to heaven, but they, they've never, never pulled the trigger on that commitment. They think they have, but they, their life shows nothing. You never see the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life. They just follow Christ in voice only. That, that's a big concern of mine. I can't, I don't know your heart. I can't know for sure. I can see the fruit in some, of, some people as they advance in their faith, but if there's anything you know in this life is that Jesus Christ is in your heart. It's the number one thing above everything else. You can play church. So like I say, we can, we can put on masks. Only God knows your heart, but it's the fact that my love for you is, is I want you to, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. In the last half millennium, a work of art that has exerted great symbolic power on a vast number of people is the Eisenheim altarpiece, completed in 1515. One art historian has called it a work of such tremendous and dismal grandeur of expression that nothing on earth seems to equal it. This awesome altarpiece, measuring 10 feet long when closed, 21 feet long when opened, and 8 feet high, is now housed in a museum in Colmar, France. The Order of St. Anthony commissioned the altarpiece for their monastery at Eisenheim. They asked Matthias Grunewald and Albrecht Durer, considered the greatest artists of the Italian High Renaissance, to present their chapel with something that would bring healing and cleansing to the poor and diseased, something especially for those afflicted with one of the most horrible diseases ever recorded in human history, a disease that wreaked more devastation on the human body than even AIDS, the gangrenous putrefactric St. Anthony's fire. Ergo, claviceps purpurea is a fungus that attacks grasses, principally rye and wheat. It reproduces by replacing the grain with a hard, dark bundle of hyphae called sclerotum. In rye, this sclerotum looks like a horn. But this bundle of hyphae contains insidious toxins, alkaloids, closely aligned to lysergic acid and LSD. The ergo alkaloids are vasoconstrictors. They restrict the flow of blood through the veins and arteries. If enough of the toxins are consumed, the blood no longer circulates. The effects of these alkaloids are devastating. In France, the toxins tended to cause gangrene. People died in agony as their limbs decayed and separated from their bodies. It was called St. Anthony's Fire, for he was the patron saint of epileptics. In any case, psychotic hallucinations were the first indicator. Mass hysteria, murder, and suicides often presaged, presaged an epidemic of St. Anthony's Fire. Sick and terrified peasants fled to the churches and monasteries for salvation. So the question is, how did the Antonite monks expect to send sick to find healing and cleansing in front of an altarpiece? What kind of therapy was in the painting? The answer was in the successive revelations unveiled by the opening and closing of the altarpiece. When the wings of the altarpiece were closed, the sick and the poor gazed at the crucifixion panel. 
the most gruesome, tortured, agonized, tormented, almost unbearable crucifixion seen ever painted. There under a monstrous crown of thorns was a dangling, pitiful body with twisted limbs, covered with countless lacerations and rivulets of blood. The scene was one of unbearable agony. But when the wings of the altar priest were open, however, the dark, deserted landscape and blue-black sky was driven away by a blaze of light. And suddenly the poor, sick pilgrims stood in awe before three spectacular panels. The first panel contained the most unusual annunciation seen in the world of art. The second depicted the angel choir with seraphs and cherubim celebrating the virgin and newborn child. And the third revealed the most glorious resurrection scene ever portrayed with Jesus exploding from the grave. But in that second panel, we see G Mary, the mother of Jesus. Have you ever wondered what it was like to be Mary? And I think we have to understand her to understand what it means to take up our cross and, and come to grips with what it must have been like for her. You've heard the angelic call. You have been chosen to receive God's favor. You have. You, the least, the last, and the lost have been called like Mary to give birth to the Christ child, to bring Christ into your world, to make Christ come alive among men and women in your sphere of influence. So where was the healing in all this, as Jesus taught in Mark 8? When one picks up their cross, authentic life is found. And Jesus was teaching pain and suffering are the door to birth and resurrection, and that is a hard pill to swallow. The lesson Jesus sought to teach his disciples before he could reach the joy set before him, he had to pass through the pain of many dark nights and shadowed valleys. And it was the thought when one stands, surrounds the fence of the Garden of Gethsemane with those old olive trees that's all gnarly that's been there thousands of years you think Jesus was among those trees. And he was in agony because he knew what was before him. Storms and darkness and suffering in our lives is not what we really signed on for, but we know that they're there, don't we? So he gives us this answer, so to speak. You pick up that cross, and it'll be your light. It'll guide you. It'll give you motivation. It'll give you purpose in life, what you're supposed to be about. And we got all these other side areas that we're about, but this would be the main one. What God has called you to do, the cross that he has given you, but unlike the cartoon, it, Jesus said, take up my cross. That It's light. It's like balsa wood. If you do it right and carry it the way that we're supposed to. And he says, it will light your way. The gospel shows us in Paul's words a more excellent way. It's a way not of health and wealth and happiness, but of servanthood. And in that servanthood, these other things follow. Mary knew that crucifixion was not a fiction. It was the structuring symbol of her life. She found favor with God in what happened to her. She ended up pregnant and unmarried. 
It was a whole different world in that day. That was a ticket to be taken outside the village and stoned. If you and I had been the Virgin Mary and the angel Gabriel came to your bedroom and showed up, would you have said no? Man, Lord, I don't think I'm not going to sign on for this. Do you think she had a choice? I've always wondered about that. But she didn't. She accepted it. And she lived it. And she suffered pain that some of you have suffered. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child, and some of you have. And she stood there at and saw her son in agony, and that's oh, more than our minds can wrap themselves around. But she hung in there. Mary was the first to realize that to accept the gospel is to enter into a radically different life adventure. The gospel is the power to become one with each other, which becomes the body of Christ and the church. Jesus said, upon this rock, I build my church, rock being Jesus, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Regardless of how this culture goes, the direction and the path that our world takes, the church will always endure to the end till Jesus, till God the Father turns to Jesus and says, get my kids out of there, and boom, we're gone. One of the things that it does for us, this darkness, this rain, rain-soaked days, it washes all the facade off. Like I say, we can be great actors and actresses, and we can play the role, and we can put on this happy face all the time. But when this darkness comes, when difficulty comes, we're washed clean. When this rain starts to fall, it washes everything off, and all is left is the real you. That that's, exposes our faith. Do you have it or not? It's your choice. We are free moral agents, and we can choose to have it or we cannot. We can choose to work and make our faith stronger, or we, we, we don't have to. We can float along. But then when, when, when this difficulty comes, sometimes we're not very strong and we, we fall apart. It's kind of like this clip as far as being in darkness and going into the light. Let's watch.
free in our earth and our solar system that while it is dark on this side of the earth, it is still light on that side of the earth because the sun has never refused to shine. God is too perfect to change his character, his grace and his authority. And even if you're having a personal dark moment in your life, don't think that God has ceased to be who he is. He'll stand right in the face of your life and say, ah! In the darkness, Christ is it's always a light that, that draws us. Would you stand with me and say this prayer? You can say it out loud or you can say it in your heart, but I, I just want you to pray this with me this morning. Lord, I'm glad today that you're with us. When those dark days come, help us to trust in you and in the midst of the storm. As rain beats down upon us, we shoulder the cross you give us, and we stand strong, and our true character comes through the character of Christ, which you have placed within us. Help us to serve you, Lord, on a daily basis, for we know, Lord, that in serving you is where real life is found. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you.